0: Father, let your mind be our mind. Let your spirit live in us, and may we have ears to hear your word. And may our hearts be open to receive it. Through Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a world that is not overtly Christian anymore. It doesn't take a lot for us to see that, to understand that. And while in this nation we are typically, people are typically not hostile to Christianity, more often than not, we are just politely shoved to the periphery of society. Christian, go ahead, do your thing, go to church, whatever, as long as it doesn't affect my life. As long as you don't want to impose anything on me, as long as you don't want that to have any bearing on what I'm doing. And after a while of hearing this and experiencing this and coming up against it time and time and time again, hearing that our faith is unimportant, useless, worthless, After a while, you begin to say, is that true? After a while, discouragement has a way of setting in, and you wonder, well, maybe they're right. You know, I don't see any progress happening much in our nation. I don't see much changing. I don't see things happening. Maybe they're right. And after a while, discouragement sort of overtakes us. And we wonder, why do we keep praying? Why do we keep reading the scriptures? Why do we keep coming together? What's the point? I was thinking of that as I was reading and, and thinking through the book of First Chronicles recently. And as I was uh, doing some, some uh, study on this book, I came to see that the ancient Israelites went through something very similar. You know, the the Israelites as God's people, Uh, God told them that um, if they didn't change their ways, repent of their sin, trouble was going to come. And eventually trouble came in the year 605 when King Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon came and attacked Jerusalem, ransacked it, and took hundreds of people back to Babylon. But they still didn't get it. And so in 586, 587, Nebuchadnezzar came back, and this time he didn't mess around. He leveled the city, destroyed the temple, tore down the walls, and took more people back to Babylon with him. And for the next 70 years, the Israelites were people in exile. But God had said to them, you won't always stay there. And when those 70 years were done, God sent the Persians to overthrow the Babylons, and he sent the first Persian king, Cyrus, to be his messenger to Israel. And he he put it in Cyrus' heart to send the Israelites, whoever wanted to, to go back to, to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple and not only to send them back, but he was paying for the whole thing. And many of them went back. And they started this process of rebuilding but there was always opposition. There were always people around them who didn't want them to succeed. And they kept sowing seeds of doubt and discouragement. And they'd get discouraged with each other. And the work didn't go as fast as they would have liked. And they kept hearing these messages that what they're doing was worthless and useless and wasn't going to change anything. And eventually it got to them. And they became so discouraged, they quit. They quit. And it's into that time and to those people that the book of Chronicles is written. It is God's word to these discouraged people, people who are suffering from an identity crisis, people who aren't sure exactly what it means to be the people of God anymore. It's to them and at this time that God sends this account. We don't know the precise date it was written. And we don't know the author's name. But we do know that the chronicler sets himself or herself to the task of responding to the Israelites and helping them understand what it means to be the people of God. And that's what makes the first nine chapters so intriguing to me. Now, if I were to ask you, when you, when you pick, if you picked up the Scriptures and just felt like you needed to get something out of it, or you were going through a difficult time and you wanted to turn to the Scriptures, what would you turn to? Now, I suspect some of you might, might lean toward the, uh, the Old Testament narratives. You love stories. Maybe some of you are poetic and, and you resonate with the Psalms. Or maybe, maybe the prophet's words of justice and mercy are what grab you. Maybe it's Paul's letters or maybe it's John's revelation. I suspect many of us will turn to the Gospels and the stories of Jesus Christ. But if I were to ask you, in those difficult moments, in the moments where you just aren't sure you're going to go forward anymore, how many of you turn to the genealogies? No, I didn't think so. We don't turn to those. I mean, we read them and think, what's the point? And in fact, most of us, when we read Chronicles, are probably thinking in the back of our minds, we might not admit it, but we're wondering, why even put this in there? It seems to us like a waste of pen and ink and time and space. Why? What's the point? And I've been pondering that, and I've been reading about that, and I've been thinking about that. And it seems to me... That there's something here for us because I don't believe anything in Scripture is accidental. I don't think there was part there was a part of Scripture that sort of snuck by God and later went, oh, I didn't realize that was in there. No, it, it's all purposeful, it's all intentional. And there's something about the this list of names. There's something about this genealogical record that has something to say to God's people. And I think, I think it's a word, of, it's God's way of reminding us that the kingdom of God is about people. I think it's God's way of reminding us and, and telling us that not only is the kingdom of God about people, but in the kingdom of God, he is more concerned about people than about principles. Now, that's kind of hard for some of us because we tend to primarily think about principles. We tend to to think about uh, rules and regulations and, and, you know, how much do I have to do to get by? What do I need to do in this class to get an A? And principles are important. And the rules and the regulations of Scripture are important. And the Scriptures are filled with principles, principles we need to learn and understand and follow. And God is concerned about principles, but I think God is more concerned about people. And I think that's at least one of the reasons why the names are here. You think about it, every principle is intended to address our relationships. Relationships don't address principles. Every word, every principle, every teaching, every law is designed to make our relationships what they ought to be. Our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Mark chapter 2 tells the story of, of Jesus going to the Sabbath. And as he was going along and through the grain fields, his disciples walked along, it says, and they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to them, hey, look, what they're doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. Principle. And Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God, and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. When Jesus is asked, Which principle is the greatest? He says, well, all the principles, all the commandments are wrapped up in relationships. Relationship with God, relationship with other people. It all comes back to relationship. People are more important to God than principles. Because the purpose of principles is to make us more connected with God and with each other. And so the writer begins with people. Because God always begins with people. This genealogy begins with people. And Walt Kaiser said earlier this week, God, when God looks at what he's created, he doesn't say that the best thing he created is oil or diamonds or the planets or the stars. No, he says the best thing he created is people. That's how important we are to God. And Chronicles is a book to remind Israel and to remind us that we are covenant people. But the covenant is not about rules and laws. It's about people. It's about relationship. Now, on the one hand, I think God is using this genealogical record to remind us that we are a part of something with God that's been going on long before we entered the picture. It's bigger than us. These people in Israel have lost their sense of heritage. They have been learning about God. They have been thinking about God. And and so the chronicler reminds all of these people about all the people who have gone on before them. So that they will be inspired about their own lives with God. This genealogy reminds us that, that we are simply stepping into the stream of God's called out people. It didn't start with us. And it's not going to end with us. And the God who is faithful to the people in this genealogy is the same God who is faithful to you and me. The same God who involves himself with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with Moses, with Benjamin, and Naphtali, and with Nimrod, the great hunter, and Jabez, the, the great prayer visionary prayer, and Tamar, Tamar the, the, the daughter-in-law of Judah... And with the descendants of Levi and the descendants of Asher and some guy named Ulam and a woman named Makah and a young shepherd named David, the same God who is with them is with us. And the same God who makes promises to them and and is involved in their lives makes promises to us and is involved in our lives. And our circumstances may be different and what our lives look like may be different, but God is the same. This is more than just history. It's more than just names. This is a record of God's people, the good, the bad and the ugly. This is a record of the faithfulness of God to his people, to good people and to bad people, to righteous people and to wicked people, to people like you and to people like me. You know, most 21st century Christians just kind of want to ignore the history of God's people. And what do we care about what people did years ago? I'm about now. I'm about the present. I'm about living a life now. And, and the present's important. And living life now is important. But if we only live in the present, if all we think about is the present, and we cut ourselves off from the past, we will be selfish, rootless, and disconnected. And I suspect that there are many times... When we already feel that way. Because we've cut ourselves off. There's something about these names that helps us see that in the kingdom of God, there are no spiritual orphans. These people who've gone before us mean something to us. We're a part of them, and they're a part of us. And Hebrews 11 presents this litany of God's people down through the ages. And in Hebrews 12 begins, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, now that you've heard about all of these people, let's go run the race. Because our God who's faithful to them is faithful with us. But God also uses this genealogical record to encourage us that God creates us to be connected to one another, whether we like it or not. You know, people are the greatest joy of life and sometimes the greatest curse of human existence. I mean, there are times where you think, life would be so great if I didn't have to deal with people. You know, my job would be great if I had to deal with all that stuff with them. Our neighbor would be perfect if it wasn't for that neighbor. School would be terrific if he didn't sit next to me, if she'd stop bugging me. Coming to church, that would be glorious if it weren't for them being here. People love us when people hurt us. People encourage us, people confuse us. People lift us up, people tear us down. People make us feel good, people can make us feel like dirt. And if we sometimes we think if we could just eliminate the problems of living with people, then life would be wonderful. And sometimes maybe we want to imagine a world like that. I've noticed that in the last 12, 15 years that Hollywood is, is attempting to depict that kind of environment from time to time. Uh, the movie Minority Report is an attempt at that. The movie iRobot is an attempt at that. There's a 2009 Bruce Willis film called Surrogates that depicts a world in which people live their lives through robotic surrogates. People wake up in the morning, they go to a room with a chair, sort of like a dentist chair, they lie down in it, they put on some goggles, and that awakens their surrogate robot who goes out and lives their life out in the world. People never leave their homes. And if you don't leave your home, nobody can hurt you. If, If you get hurt, you just come back, you fix it. Get another surrogate, go back out again. There's one scene where, where Bruce Willis actually goes out out of his house and he, he, he has a panic attack. He's never been around people before. Never been even around these robots before. Except for right in his little home. And the people who make the surrogate robots, their motto is, life only better. <laughs> and there's something in us that likes to think that Something other than real life with real people would be better than real life with real people. And so we try to circumvent real life. We're looking for something better. And we continue to distance ourselves from each other. But we have to keep coming back to the truth, as every one of these movies does. And what people through the ages have come to understand, that real life is real people. And if you eliminate real people, you eliminate real life. We're created for each other with a need and a yearning to be connected to each other. That's one reason why the church is so essential to our walk with God. The church is not just a good idea. It's not an option among many. It's essential to us because we come together in worship. And the function of worship is to get us together and to remind us of God's faithfulness through the ages. To encourage us. And to connect with other Christians as we go through all kinds of stuff. To support each other, to challenge each other, to be involved with each other. And I know that the church is far from perfect. And that disappoints us and that discourages us. And sometimes it causes us to question our involvement and our connection in it. And I understand that. But that doesn't give us the right to disconnect ourselves from each other. It simply means that, frankly we'll have to, at times, just grow up and figure out a way to get along and to work things out and to respect each other even when we disagree with each other and to love each other even when we frustrate each other and to draw close to each other even when we rather walk away from each other. Because we are committed, as the people of God, you're committed to each other. And that's true whether you attend this church year-round or whether you are a college or an academy student. And if your roots here are temporary, if it doesn't really seem like home, it's not like what you're used to, but while you're here, you need to connect with God's people. Now's the time to get connected, to get involved. That's part of the reason why we try to offer a, a number of ministries to connect people. Because we're realizing that we need something bigger than just me. And the genealogy is one more means that God uses to remind us that in this world that's apathetic toward us, we can together find hope and encouragement because we're connected to each other and we're going to go through this thing together. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to allow tensions to divide us. And we far too quickly run when difficulties arise instead of staying put and working it out and letting God reveal his power over our relationships. You know, we all have people that drive us crazy from time to time. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker or a supervisor or an in-law. It might even be a pastor. I'm sure that's not the case, but it could be. Is it possible that God hasn't yet removed them or hasn't removed them from your life because they're his tool? To mature you and to bless you? Is it possible that that person in our lives is a means to teaching us patience and compassion or mercy, forgiveness or humility or gentleness, self control or love? Is it possible that some folks in this church that we struggle with might be God's instrument to help us see our selfishness, our narrow mindedness, the need for God to do something new? In us, and the writer of Chronicles never loses sight of the of Israelite unity. This phrase "all Israel" appears throughout this ac- this account, and he em- it's really emphasizing that despite the fact that for hundreds of years Israel has been a divided nation of north and south, separate kingdoms, God is bringing them together as His people. And it reminds me of what Paul writes to the Galatians. That in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You're a part of Abraham's genealogy. And you're heirs of God's great promise. I suspect that most of us, when we come to First Chronicles and begin this book, think, oh man. And we might glance through it or scan it or probably skip over it. But there's theology going on here. As much theology as we might find in Leviticus or Romans or any of the Gospels. Without these genealogies, we so easily forget Centrality of people to the kingdom of God, people are living witnesses of god 's faithfulness. people who remind us of our connectedness as the people of God and you know every name in this genealogy has a story and has some kind of relationship with god, and so do we and every person in this genealogy has some relationship with other people. And so do we. So even in the, in the ongoing genealogy of God's people, as you think about what people are going to think about when they look back, you might think of yourself as a footnote or an unpronounceable name. But nevertheless... You're important to God. And we are important to each other. That's what the kingdom's about. In a few moments when we come to take communion, we're going to celebrate the fact that God is so enamored with people that He actually becomes one of us. And He makes it possible through Christ to have the kind of relationship with Him and with each other that He created us to have. Holy Father, help us to understand what it means to be Your people. We pray, Father, that as we prepare to come to this table, that you will pour out your blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. We pray, Father, that as we receive the bread and the cup, that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak deeply to us of your love for us and how important each one of us is to you. And the connectedness, even the joy of connectedness with one another. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.